Well, it is a, a truly a great privilege for me to introduce Deepesh Chakrabarti, um, my friend and mentor, uh, on behalf of the Nicholson Center today. Um, currently, uh, Lawrence A. Kimpton Distinguished Service Professor at this university, visiting research professor at the Australian National University, and professorial fellow at the School of Historical Studies at the University of Melbourne, uh, Deepesh is also um, erstwhile unpunctual employee in the Defence Department of Australia, um, <laughs> singer-songwriter of uh, recorded popular irreverent Bengali songs with a very high price on the black market, uh, <laughs> undergraduate student of physics and very unlikely diploma holder in business management. Um, <coughs> And I enumerate these details here, not only in the spirit of expose, uh, but to convey some sense of the sheer density of practices. The song in Bengal, the everyday life of bureaucracy, the biography of products, and the variety of habitations, Calcutta, Canberra, Chicago, that Dipesh has refused to leave unharnessed in the exquisitely humane and intimate questions that he has put to history, as indeed to the gamut of decolonial disciplines in the course of his very distinguished career. Always placing a tangible life world in conversation with the structure, technology, and apparatus of imperial modernity, Dipesh's work does not posit any simple contrast between the real of oppression and the abstraction of power so much as render disciplinary structures and their objects as simultaneous forms of discrepant consciousness, antipathetic materiality, and dissonant temporality. These are the procedures that he has put to work under the name of difference as founding editor of Subaltern Studies in a subtle study of revolutionary anachronicity in his rethinking working class history as an inquiry into historical translation in his highly acclaimed Provincializing Europe and as a series of meditations on communicable humanness in the habitations of modernity. Currently at work on history as profession in South Asia, on the status of difference in the wake of shared global environmental crisis and on mass politics and democracy in India, Dipesh will address us today on empire, ethics, and the calling of history. Please join me in welcoming him to the floor. Thank you. Thank you very much, all of you, for coming for in these conditions. I initially thought I would at least um, imitate Balibar, not in uh, scaling the kind of intellectual heights he can, but in speaking over time, and, but looking at this, I think I'll be editing my piece severely as I go along. Um, I have to, of course, thank Bredin for, where is Bredin? There. For the invitation to speak. I have to thank you all for coming, for giving me this opportunity to share with you um, a part of a project I'm currently working on. Um, I have to thank Leela for that wonderful introduction. And I also have to thank two of my students, Doipayan Chen and Arvind Langovan, who have from time to time helped me with, uh, with assistance on this project. This Thursday, this slot at 4.30 is usually the slot for South Asia seminar, and there are people here, including myself, who are devout South Asianists, devoted South Asianists, and I want to reassure them that the middle part of the talk is about South Asia. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> but I begin somewhere else. I would like to present to you a hypothesis about the discipline of history, can you hear me, Rajashri, back? Yeah. About the discipline of history, by looking at certain facts across quite large gaps of time and space, I do not paint a complete picture. And many of my dots undoubtedly remain to be connected by future research, yet I hope my hypothesis will make sense and offer you a problem to ponder. It was over the 19th century that history became an important academic discipline in the West. One of the most salient aspects of that story was how, in spite of all the contestation that Ranka's idea of scientific history was subjected to, 
sometimes by his own students. The rubric for the expression was not always expressive of the same idea, but the rubric of universal history held sway for most of the 19th century and for the first half of the 20th. After the end of the Second World War, however, the conception of universal history steadily went into a decline from which it has never recovered. Consider, for instance, two landmark books, Mark Bloch's The Historian's Craft, published in 1941, and E.H. Carr's What is History, published 20 years later in 1961. In writing The Historian's Craft in 41, Bloch assumed that he was writing for the next generation. For the book actually begins by responding to a question that a young boy had put to him, tell me, daddy, what is the use of history? <coughs> in fact, Lucien Ferber also makes the same point, that they were working in the 40s to create a sense of history for the next generation. Um, and Bloch's answer to this question from the young boy began with the statement, as far back as I can remember, it, that is history, has been for me a constant source of pleasure. As for all historians, I think, if not, why have they chosen this occupation? To anyone who is not a blockhead, all the sciences are interesting. I think that was partly my problem in my career. You know? uh, uh, yet, each scholar finds but one that absorbs him. Finding it, in order to further devote himself to it, he terms it his vocation, his calling. Writing more than 100 years before Bloch, von Ranke, in a letter dated November 1829 to his brother Heinrich, expressed sentiments that were not all that different from Bloch's. And this is Ranke. I have been here in Rome for a long time. There is something invigorating and refreshing in this searching and finding, in the uninterrupted pursuit of a greater universal purpose. You are always on a venture. In the end, you must say, I was called to this. For this, is, for this I was born. For this I exist. In this I find my joys and sorrow. My life and my destiny are included in this. Calling was obviously a word with theological resonance. As Ranka's student Meinek said about his teacher, Ranka was always anxious to so, show what things really had been like. And then Meinek adds, a serious and priestly approach lay concealed in this desire. And Ranka was indeed filled something of the priest's exaltation." Unquote. Between Ranka and Bloch then, in spite of the years that separated him, them in spite of the differences and the overlaps between French historiography and German historiography, there was still this shared idea that history was a vocation, a calling. And as we know, um, uh, this uh, ideal is easily traced in the case of Ranka, but Bloch also in turn understood each science, including history, as, represented, as representing but a fragment of the universal march towards knowledge. So the idea of calling is very closely connected in their heads to the idea of a universal idea of truth or a universal conception of truth. Uh, Bloch actually says in his book, we simply ask to bear in mind that historical research will tolerate no autarky. Indeed, each will understand only halves within his own field of study for the only true history which can be advanced only through mutual aid is universal history. What then, what one might ask, was the relationship between the idea of calling and that of universal or true history? What connected them, it seems to me, was a practice of asceticism that followed from the idea of calling. Meinek remarked that there was something priest-like in Ranker's method. Bloch expressed the idea in his own way when he said that what characterized the scholar and the judge also, he, he said, Ginsburg would have interesting differences with Bloch on that, but Bloch said, what characterized the scholar and the judge was, and I'm quoting, their honest submission to truth. What would it mean to submit to truth in an honest manner? It meant, first of all, cultivating an ethic of renunciation with respect to one's own attachments, that which connected the historian to his past or to his or her present. The present, Bloch would happily grant, always tended to influence our sense of the past, but he was also sure, and I'm quoting him, misunderstanding of the present is an inevitable consequence, of the present is an inevitable consequence of ignorance of the past. 
It took a great amount of mental strength, Bloch says, for the historian to submit to truth in an honest manner. There was something approaching the religious, that there was something approaching the religious in this submission is suggested also by the crow's parallel between what Bloch was saying and what William James, for instance, said about evidence in his essay, The Will to Believe. James spoke in that essay of the patience and postponement, of what he called choking down of preferences, the submission to the icy laws of outer fact, and the thousands of disinterested moral lives that went into the making of what he called the absolutely impersonal edifice of the physical sciences, which made, he said, every little sentimentalist who pretended to decide things out of his private dream seem besotted and contemptible. In truth, wrote Bloch, whoever lacks the strength while seated at his desk to rid the mind of the virus of the present may really permit its poison to infiltrate even a commentary on the Iliad or the Ramayana. This strength for Bloch showed itself in what he called historical criticism. That is the historian being able to interrogate evidence, write, um, uh, write from dates to the detection of forgery, uh, and Brock actually goes on to talk about the pleasure he had in actually correcting his sources. The 20 years that separated Brock's The Historian Craft and E. H. Carr's Trevelyan Lectures of 1961 were published under the title, What is History? And these 20 years saw a sea change in our idea of historical truth and objectivity, that is 41 to 61. I say sea change, but I do not deny the opposition that Carr's lectures received from several other stalwarts of his own time. Sir Isaiah Berlin, Hugh Trevor Roper, Jeffrey Elton, to name but a few. But the influence of what is history is reflected in the fact that even today it is among one of the best sellers on history. And by the time Jonathan Haslam published his 1989 biography of Carr, the book had sold a quarter of a million copies. Very few books on history sell that number. What Bloch called historical criticism, that is being able to correct your sources for Carr, was the prehistory of the historian's labor. Carr is quite clear that that's not what a historian is really meant to do. In fact, he quotes the classical scholar and poet a houseman to say that accuracy is a duty but not a virtue, whereas for Bloch it would have been a virtue. Uh, to praise a historian for his accuracy is like praising an architect for using well-seasoned timber or probably mixed concrete in his building, says Carr. Not only did the status of facts and historical criticism change in the years intervening between Bloch's and Carr's books, more significant it seems to me is that the idea of universal history or truth lost ground in proportion to the importance that the idea of perspective or point of view gained in historians' thinking. Carr's book gives some internal chronology of this. I mean, for instance, there's a discussion of uh, Cambridge Modern History produced in 19, 1896 under the editorship of Lord Acton, and the one published under the editorship of Sir George Clarke in 1957. Acton is talking about universal history. Uh, George Clarke is talking, saying, in the introduction, since all historical judgments involve persons and points of view, one is as good as the other, and there is no objective historical truth. Documenting such ascendancy of the importance given to different points of view in the 20th century, Carr cites Collingwood from the idea of history. As one of the earliest, actually what he quotes from Collingwood, which is a very famous quote that Augustine looked at history from the point of view of the early Christian, Tillemont from the point of view of 17th century Frenchman, Gibbon from 18th century Englishman. Actually, Carr doesn't say it, but it's actually from a letter that Collingwood wrote to T.H. Uh, Knox, the Hegel scholar, who also put together Collingwood's idea of history posthumously. And the interesting thing was that, that Collingwood actually was, through Knox and through that connection, was almost an intellectual disciple of Croce. So in a way, what's speaking through Carr's position is a Crocean position that actually was not so popular before the war. When Croce's book on historical methods came out in English translation in 1920-21, the review in American Historical Review was very unwelcoming. When Collingwood's idea of history was published in 1946, there's a scathing review of it by Leo Strauss, completely defending the Rankian position against Collingwood. Carr himself would not, of course, be an absolute relativist. 
He says when he prays, when we praise a historian for being objective, when we call a historian objective, we mean two things. First, that he has a capacity to rise above the limited vision of his own situation in society and history, and a capacity partly dependent on his capacity to recognize the impossibility of total objectivity. So in some ways, it's not that no universal truth in his position. It's the universal truth he recognizes is the impossible of total objectivity. But obviously, it's not a truth that historians can adjudicate. So what he has done, he, what he has accepted as universal, properly belongs to discussions in philosophy department. Because the historian's methods cannot settle that question, whether there is total objectivity or not. So in some respects, he has made history into a subject that cannot deal in its own, through its own methods with the question of total objectivity, or cannot decide that issue. If the historian just simply takes for granted. So what Carr then both documents and elaborates for us is precisely the demise of history as a vocation, of the spirit that the well-known imperial historian, Sir Keith Hancock, borrowing deliberately from his father's priestly vocabulary, once etched into the very title of the first volume of his autobiography, which he called Country and Calling. To repeat then, for a ranka or a block, approaching historical truth required some amount of ethical preparation on the part of the historian. Something like the utopian work that Ranka thought would help him realize his impossible desire to extinguish himself so that he could be open to the truth about the past. The pursuit of historical truth today does not, as a rule, require such ethical relationship to oneself. As Peter Novick rightly comments, the historian's sense of objectivity today is grounded, I'm quoting Peter, more in social mechanisms of criticism than evaluation, and he says, less in the quality of individuals, which is the difference that I'm pointing to, that whereas for Bloch or for Ranke, it precisely would have been a question of the quality of the individual. The ethics of history writing now seem to lie more in what is perceived as the politics of such writing. For the demise of a sense of vocation also released the historian from any obligation to be bound to an ethical, non-partisan relationship to historical truth, the rise of perspectivalism signaled the coming of an era of partisan truths in the field of history, and I will return to this point in my concluding remarks. How do we understand this change? I would broadly say this was a result of democratizing movements through society. And I see three figures of such democratizing movements. A certain kind of democratization of the subject history, a turn towards the history of the common people, played a role here resulting in the rise in importance of such subfields as social and economic history. Again, all origins, you know, I'm enough of a Foucauldian to grant that all origins are dispersed and, and there's no, I mean, the, the French begin to take an interest in economic history in the 1890s, but in terms of Anglo historiography, one can say, let's say G.D.H. Cole and Raymond Postgate's 1938 book, The Common People, that pioneered a trend towards making the non-elite the subject of history by turning towards economic and social statistics. And by, this, and, by this, and by the time Carr gave his lectures, history has been largely claimed by social sciences, that is in the 60s, triumphant globally over the humanities in this period. And a certain understanding of democracy also impacted on the very idea of calling itself. You will recall that Max Weber, in the famous speech on science that he gave to the Bavarian Free Students Association in 1917, defined calling the institution of vocation as opposed to profession, though the German word carries both meanings, it seems. He defined calling as a kind of intellectual, something that belonged to an intellectual aristocracy that he felt was under threat because of the German university life and German life in general falling under the influence of what he called Americanization. There's a wonderful book that Edward Schills actually edited on Weber's reflections on American universities and American um, and he actually has very interesting things to say about Chicago University and Columbia University, interestingly. Universities that themselves pair themselves. To the idea of vocation, that is an inward sense of science as, as a calling, Weber opposed the idea of what he called the large capitalist university enterprises promoting mass education. This was his sense of what an American university does. I have a deep distrust, wrote Weber, of courses, and I might add lectures, that draw crowds. <laughs> However unavoidable they may be. Democracy, he continued, should be used only where it is in place. 
scientific training as we are held to practice it in accordance with the tradition of German universities is the affair of an intellectual aristocracy and we should not hide it from ourselves. This was not sour grapes, by the way. This was not the case of a Schopenhauer grudging Hegel his crowded classes while his own ran empty. <laughs> Weber's lectures in Vienna in this period were sensational successes, writes Wolfgang Schluchter, who also says that he, he landed in the largest auditorium where people were so curious to see him that an irreverent curiosity kept the doors in perpetual motion. Theodore Hughes, who attended these lectures and saw how the curious crowds actually pained Weber, records Weber's response to them. When Hughes said to him, you must be pained by this, Weber said, yes, and I'm quoting over, it certainly is not possible to roar the word asceticism into such a room. <laughs> Again, we do not need to fetishize Weber's lectures into an absolute chronology of the beginning of the end of the idea of calling. For the lecture actually evoked resistance among several of Weber's contemporaries, among the students he addressed, including uh, Eric von Kaller, who wrote a book about it, and some of them actually mobilizing the writings of Croce against Weber on their side. But I do think that Weber's lectures mark a shift in the history of how we practice the human sciences. Weber's essay suggests then a second figuration of democratization of society that may have threatened the idea of calling that is, of mass education. But what I want to argue with the help of Indian history is that there was, there was yet another global figure of democracy at work here, transforming the nature of the discipline. And that was, oh, thank you, thank you. And that was decolonization, a process whose beginnings may be glimpsed in the 1920s, but which really unfolded, thank you very much, thanks. <laughs> which really unfolded in the succeeding decades achieving its climax in the era of Bandung and what followed that historical gathering. So now I'm in the second part of the paper, the Indian history territory. It seems clear then, is, is it working? Great, Let, let's have that on, on. It seems clear then that the assumed ethical relationship between the historian and the truths of history were, was related, that rela relationship was related to a perception that such truths were universal and constituted a kind of public good that was underwritten by some universal institution, which is what made the ethical practice seem valid, that the, the truth you're looking for, truth you're trying to approach, has a sort of universal significance, which is undergirded by an universal institution, and the universal institution could have been Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, or the Prussian state, in Ranker's case, or even French Republicanism in blocks. The decline of the ethical agency of the historian and the consequent decline in the status of historical truth has something to do then with the idea of, with the decline of this idea of history as a public good, bolstered by some institution of universal significance. And it is this part of my unfolding hypothesis that I want to illustrate with the story of mainly an Indian historian. The protagonist of my story is Sar Jadunath Sarkar. Here, picture is a young boy. I should say that the photos I show you we're not, um, these were actually found in, uh, uh, found by an institution, a social science institution, which was set up in the building that Sarkar lived in. So when they were clearing the place, they found in the rubbish some photographs, which now are actually in the archives of that institution, and that's where I got them from. So some of them are not dated, they don't have captions, but this is obviously our man uh, uh, as a young person. Jadunath Sarkar lived between 1870 and 1958, usually regarded as the doyen of modern history in India, he's also seen as someone superseded by later research. Most of his working life, his official duties had to do with the teaching of literature and history in the last few years of his career at undergraduate institutions such as the Ripon College, Calcutta. Can I have that next one, please? And Patna College in Bihar. And actually, if you see him, all stories, all memories about Jadunath Sarkar are actually about his character. I mean, he embodied that ethic. And even sitting in that erect posture, you know, spine straight, is part of the Victorian, almost Protestant upbringing that he gave himself. Um, and the Raventure College in Cuttack, in Orissa. He retired in 1926. Can I have the next one? Thank you. He retired in 1926 when he was appointed the vice chancellor of the University of Calcutta for two years. Sarkar became a self-taught historian with a strong interest in the last phase 
of the history of the Mughal Empire. He wrote a five-volume history of the last great Mughal, Aurangzeb, published between 1912 and 1924. Between 1932 and 1950, he published four volumes of the fall of the Mughal Empire. He wrote numerous other books and essays besides these. And he would be actually a retired person, an independent scholar, as we call them now, from 1929 on. He was knighted in 1929 when he becomes Sir Jadunath. I'll come to Sir Desai, yeah. He was knighted in 1929, and is um, and until now the only Indian historian to have ever been elected, as he was in 1952, an honorary fellow of the American Historical Association. Can, can we go to the next one quickly? Yeah. His lifelong collaborator was G.S. Sardesai. I mean, their friendship itself is actually a story about what a modern discipline can enable. They became friends because they were looking for complementary sources for writing the histories that, you know, no historian in Mughal period, even people who wrote history became friends with another person on the basis of looking for sources. I mean, it is completely a friendship made possible by modernity. This is Sardesai when he was about uh, 28. Um, there are 1,300 letters from their correspondence that have survived. Between 1904, they started uh, writing, to 1954. A lot of what I say is on the basis of these letters that are in the National Library in Calcutta. What interests me in studying Sarkar was his role in pioneering a Rankian spirit of historiography, however vulgar and vulgate its Indian incarnation. Ranka was popular in India, late 19th century India, but Sarkar was one of the few who cultivated systematically the spirit of scientific history. And in 1915, in a speech, he made it very clear that the way forward in historical research about the Mughal times was through European historiography. He actually used German, he says German too, and he, he actually says, if intoxicated by the passion of nationalism, we happen to ignore this new method on the ground that Europeans have adopted it, then we'll only harm our own cause. The histories we write will be imperfect because they will be unscientific. What Meinek wrote about Ranka finds an echo in what Sarkar said throughout his life on the question of historical truth. As many of his biographers have noted, he thought of history as a kind of calling. I'm just, again, in the interest of time, I'm going rushing through some of these bits. Um, he was very clear. He said, our history of India, he wrote in 1937, must appeal to universal reason by transcending the narrow limits of national prejudices and beliefs. So he didn't believe in nationalist history, um, because he said, science knows no barriers of country or race and owes no homage except to truth. In speaking of himself in a radio broadcast in 1948, he spoke of the eternal vitality that was always there in honest efforts and true words. And he actually described historical research using a Sanskrit word, sadhana, a pursuit that had a distinctly ascetic and religious quality about it. Bloch's observation about the importance of the historian being able to question and correct their sources applies to him completely. That is, some many of the letters are actually about his joy in being able to correct his sources. And the Rankian spirit drove his institutional ambitions as well. When the government of India set up the Indian Historical Research Commission in 1919 and made Sarkar a member of the founding body, his efforts were completely focused in publishing selections of documents in the model of a Momsen, he said, and in holding academic sessions where he could impart to aspiring Indian historians the art of quellen critic or source criticism. In 1930s, when many departments in universities in India started up departments of postgraduate studies in history, and when these young researchers and professors, actually, who were more interested in profession rather than vocation, started up the first professional association, Indian, Historical, Indian History Congress, in 1935, Sarkar refused to join them and thought the whole thing, the very idea of a conference producing knowledge, a vulgar tamasha. Tamasha is the word for public entertainment. <coughs> so he simply didn't believe. In response, he and Sardesai held for a few years an annual seminar, very much a Rankian seminar, but with interesting Indian differences, at Sardesai's home in Kamshet near Pune, modeled pretty much on the Rankian model of a research seminar where a master craftsman, in this case Sarkar, would spend time with his disciples discussing sources and the uses. The next two, please. So that's a picture of that Sarkar in the foreground, Sardesai next to him, the young man now old. And, um, and can we go to the next one too? Thanks. And that's the students. Some of them would go on to become quite well-known historians in their own right. Uh, the reason why this didn't work was because most of his students were interested in going to the Indian History Congress. 
so much so that actually they had to hold this back to back with the Indian History Congress just to let the students go there. So it's not like, not like his students were so devoted to the Rankianism that he was. What interests me actually about Sarkar's Rankianism and, um, and what was part of it was as his sense of loyalty to the British Empire. What interests me here is the untimeliness. The untimeliness of his Rankianism in 20th century India when mass nationalism became the mainstay of politics in the subcontinent. So in 19th century India, if you go back, there are many, many important Indians, including Gandhi, um, who proclaim their loyalty to the British Empire. They proudly say, I'm a subject of the British Empire. I mean, as you know, Gandhi was here collecting volunteers for both the Boer War and the First World War. Among 20th century historian, Indian intellectuals, Nirad Choudhury would proudly proclaim that he was a subject of British Empire. The great Indian Indologist, Sir R.G. Bhandarkar, 1837 to 1925, for again was a Rankian. He was, um, he was the most prominent Indologist of the 19th century. And quite clearly in his essays, he had talked about Ranka. Uh, and uh, in fact, people who write his life say, Bhandarkar, this man who died in 25 or 26, was the father of scientific historical scholarship in the same period of Indian history as Sir Jadunath was in medieval and early British period. The only interesting thing I find is that Bhandarkar was older by a couple of decades and was lucky to die by the time nationalism had started. So because nationalists wanted point of view history. Nationalists wanted history from an Indian point of view or from a caste point of view, Hindu point of view, Muslim point of view, religious point of view. Bandarkar or Sarkar would have been opposed to a, the very idea of a point of view history. I mean, they may have unwittingly practiced point of view history, but that's not the, what they would have advocated. And I think the reason why Bandarkar did not get the kind of opposition was because his departure was timely. You know, whereas Sarkar, younger man, lived on up till 1957 and, uh, and had to suffer the consequences. That's why it is the untimeliness of his drunkenism that, that interests me. Um, Sarkar, in that sense, both Sarkar and Sardesai never had any sympathy for the street politics of Gandhi and Satyagraha, and strikes that in combination with limited franchise was to become the language of mass politics in India in the 1930s and 40s. As official funds for some of their projects to bring out selections of documents ran out around 1930, Sardesai, for instance, complained to Sarkar about the British commissioner in Pune. He said, he's altogether preoccupied with civil disobedience wallahs, and has no room in his brain for any historical research. Sarkar, in turn, complained in a letter in 1940, and, and he says, I'm sick of this cat and mouse game which the blind Congress is trying to play with Pax Britannica, and now he talks about Gandhi, under the whip of a demented Gujarati Bania's son. Bania is a trading caste, so he refers to Gandhi as this demented Gujarati Bania's son, who believes himself an avatar, an incarnation. This is the age of democracy and demagogy, Sardesai writes in 1934, expressing feelings of frustration, having failed to move the vice chancellor of the University of Bombay into taking an active interest in the selection of historical documents, in his publication, publicating his selection of historical documents. Um, this, I mean, I, I, I won't go into the details of it, but this, basically throughout the 30s, Sarkar is faced with opposition from these nationalist historians. And Sarkar and Sardesai are almost lonely pair. Uh, but they're still in the in kind of, uh, they enjoy the patronage of the colonial bureaucracy until nationalist movement really becomes so strong that 10 years before independence, the British realize they have to leave the country and that bureaucracy switches its allegiance. They drop Sarkar and Sarkar becomes distant even from the bureaucracy. Sarkar fumed at the aspersion the identity politicians, the caste politicians, religion politicians, cast on the quality of his scholarship in the 1930s or on Sardesai's financial and scholarly probity. But he did not see the writing on the wall that the days of scientific and universal truth, history, historical truths were numbered. Nationalist politics gave rise to identities of different kinds, from the national to caste and communal ones, and the demand would be for what we may call, to distinguish it from universal histories, point of view histories. The colonial bureaucracy was willingly or unwillingly complicit in the process, for that is the only way they could share power, at least for the time being, with increasingly politicized Indians. The empire in decline was a hollow and receding utopia of the universal. On the rise from 1940s on was the demand for nationalist histories, histories written by Indians from Indian point of view. 
K. M. Munshi, who was later to edit a series of nationalist volumes on Indian history, wrote to Sardesai in November 43, saying, I'm most anxious that the world is presented with a history of India written by Indians at the end of the war. When the nationalist historian Tarachand of Allahabad University approached Sarkar just after independence, inviting him to, a cha to chair a history of India board, Sarkar in his could only fulminate against, and this is not a letter to back to uh, the man who wrote to him, Tarachand, but letter back to Sardesai, he could only fulminate against the poor standards of Indian scholarship and of Indian English. He wrote, I know that a debating club, especially one composed of educated Indians, cannot bring any work to completion. In case Allahabad agrees to have me, they must endow me with full powers. Exactly as the Cambridge University, Cambridge University did to Sir William Hague. William Hague was the editor of the Cambridge History of India in the 1930s. And they were all colonial officials who were writing the Cambridge History. If I have to correct and rewrite the rubbish which our Indian professors of history write, as I found to my bitter experience when editing the second volume of Dhaka University History of Bengal, I must be paid an extra fee for this dhobi work. Dhobi is the traditional washerman who comes and cleans your clothes. So he's saying, the reference to Cambridge University actually in that letter points to the Europe that Sarkar idealized as the home of scholarship. Unlike Bhandarkar, however, Sarkar had never personally been to Europe nor was he in conversation actually with European scholars as Bandarkar had been. It's an interesting uh, problem in Indian history that what had a market in Europe in the 19th century, and even probably has a bigger market today than modern history, was Indology. You know, when uh, Grand Duff wrote his history of Marathas in 1826, he couldn't find a market for it in England. Because nobody, they said, you know, write about Sanskrit, write about civilization. What produced a market for contemporary Indian stuff was the mutiny of 1857 that everybody is interested in. Um, so the people, actually, Sarkar thinks constitute the Europe of his mind are the colonial officials who are writing Indian history, who are editing Cambridge History of India. And that, for Sarkar, was the Europe. Nor, so he was not in conversation with European scholars in Europe. His mentors, if any, were the scholars of the Raj produced from within the ranks of colonial administrators. Yet an imaginary Europe worked from him as a constant reference as the ultimate and universal measure of scholarly standards. And because he believed that reason was something that belonged to everybody, even if the Europeans had been the first to deploy it in the writing of history, he did not see his own position as a demeaning one. He was a proud and private man. He would not have voiced his respect for Europe in his letters to Sardesai if such opinions hurt his sense of self-respect. And that's the interesting thing about the loyalty to this empire, is that the acknowledgment of European superiority is not something that actually hurts the self-respect of these people. <coughs> for reasons of space, I'll just have a few, only a few examples will have to suffice. When, for instance, Sarkar drafted, um, let me just again uh, compress this part. When um, Sardesai drafted a preface to the selections of historical documents that he was working on, Sarkar wrote a foreword to it. Now, Sardesai was even less connected to Europe than Sarkar was, though he had traveled in Europe. Sardesai wrote back to him saying, probably you mean this foreword for European readers outside India? The earnest tone of Sarkar's reply shows how indifferent he perhaps was to nationalist pride and how seriously he took his assumptions about intellectual superiority of Europe. Literary grace, he said, is the defining quality of, for my foreword, as for an essay in the Edinburgh Review. Rajwad's letters will be mentioned with praise in my foreword by adding a line, but I do not consider any further changes desirable to placate the howling mob of Indian historians in Pune. My foreword is intended for readers in Europe where they require such a comprehensible readable survey and not an official report. Or take this instance from, um, um, <coughs> let me just again, uh, when Sardesai actually published this, selections, and they were not appreciated in, in Bombay. Sarkar writes this letter back to him, and I'll just do that, and then Sarkar says, um, send these letters, send your selections of documents back to Europe. And he says, in Europe, my dear Nana, the, uh, he lovingly, affectionately called Sardesai Nana. My dear Nana, writes Sarkar, in Europe, your work as the editor of the Peshwa Daftar, these are 18th century documents from the Bombay region, would have been promptly recognized by your own university and every university where Maratha history is taught by conferring on you the honorary degree of delete. In England, Mr. Loeb, 
a mere rich man, probably innocent of the classics, was created a doctor by the Cambridge University because he financed the issue of a new edition of the Greek and Latin classics. True scholars are there honored even more surely and quickly. But here, half the Senate and the Board of History are blissfully ignorant of the present state of research, and the other half are consumed by jealousy of your achievements. This has been my experience, he continued, but I don't care, as I have secured recognition in Europe in no small measure. And again, the irony is he secured recognition with the Europeans who work for the British government in India. Here, on the other hand, one man takes the opportunity of his visit to any provincial university as an external examiner to whisper what he represents as mistakes in my work, and his professor audience, ignorant of Portuguese and Marathi, or at, at least of that particular history, swallow his lies without questions. But as you see, I survived these tactics. He even in another letter, he actually advises Sardesai, he says, um, Send your selections to Sir Edward Gate. Again, Gate was a census commissioner back. You know, these people retire, go back to Europe, go back to England, they work for the Royal, they write reviews of Sar Sar Sarkar's book in the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society. Some of them would eventually become professors at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Uh, so there's a kind of colonial bureaucratic scholarship which is really uh, mentoring him. And he writes to Sardesai, send your selection to Sir Edward Gate. Please see, and the, here you see the, the, almost the, the fetish of his imagined Europe, please see that only the soon-to-be-released bound volumes are sent, and not lose paths, as Englishmen, unlike Frenchmen and the Portuguese, care to handle only bound books. <laughs> <laughs> and dislike brochures in paper cover. If there was a tragedy to Sarkar's life, it lay in his constantly mistaking the very particular and pragmatic British colonial bureaucracy in India for the universal figure of the empire. He could not see that the colony slash empire was an internally fissured formation. By the time, by the time Sarkar lost out to the younger generation of historians in his battle to control the future of historical research in India, the colonial officials had silently made room for nationalists to take control of the educational bureaucracy. They dropped Sarkar quite unceremoniously from important committees in 1940. The research seminar at Kamshet that Sarkar had started to help young researchers resist the temptation of the Indian History Congress languished and died within two years. In the last 15 years of his life, Sarkar lived the life of a solitary researcher, respected for his erudition and knowledge, but bypassed by the new schools of Mughal history that were to take shape at the universities of Aligarh and Allahabad. And actually, uh, one person very uh, uh, interesting in that story who starts the rebellion against Sarkar and actually bringing down his prestige in Labad University was R.P. Tripathi who did um, a PhD on Mughal history with Lasky when Lasky was actually interested in Indian independence movement from the mid-20s, mid-30s and and the accusation arose that Sarkar's histories like Rankas were too political, not institutional enough, not economic enough and the rise of eventually a Marxist and avowedly secular school of Mughal history in Aligarh in the 1950s would be proof that the time of, for partisan and not universal history had come. Now I come to the last concluding part of my talk. So the demise of universal history that I've sought to describe to you was not, as must be clear by now, a uniquely Indian story. To me, the story seems to belong to a global movement. I began my presentation with a bald outline of the global story, and in the interest of time, I will present you with some only quick remarks in conclusion. Historians stand in a different relationship to truth today. They do not talk so much about historical truth as about objectivity. You will remember Novick's remark that I quoted earlier that objectivity is no longer seen as something that depends on the quality of the individual. David Hollinger, for instance, contends that the basis for historical objectivity now lies, and I'm quoting, in the wide degree of intersubjective agreement among professional historians as to the criteria for a successful historical scholarship. So it is ultimately, objectivity is a matter of opinion, the collective opinion of one's peers. <coughs> it's interesting, and Momiliano actually, in a, in a 1954 essay, 100 years after Ranka, left us some fascinating thoughts of what was left of Ranka's methods and his conclusion, which I agree with, is that what was mainly left was the idea of source criticism bereft of any ethical or theological connotation. Why has this happened? And I've tried to document the role of democracy 
in different, in different figurations of democracy in the story. One could also add to that story the roles that nationalism and the modern media have played in the process. But the, what is interesting is that the question of historical truth, that 19th century question, that ethical question of ethical relationship to historical truth, I think, remains <coughs> encrypted in our discussions of objectivity. I mean, one piece, little piece of evidence I can give you is Alan McGill's book published last year on historical objectivity, quite a detailed examination of objectivity, where he slips in a sentence, just one sentence, which says, but a historian is required to practice some detachment from his or her own passions. And I'm, I'm saying that is like a memory of that 19th century question. The question of historical truth, however, remains encrypted in the talk about objectivity. Otherwise, if objectivity were, were as wide of the mark as any subjective procedures, why bother to be objective at all? But this produces a problem. The ghostly presence of the question of truth in the discourse on objectivity creates a contradiction. For objectivity can allow for perspectives or points of view. In short, for presentism, the urge to make history useful for the present struggles, which is why we can have quite commendable and committed histories, Marxist, feminist, indigenous, because objectivity can combine with passion. The question of truth, however, in the Rankian tradition was actually about a position that said that you could approach that truth only by leaving the shores of the present. And that expression, leaving the shores of the present, I take from Leo Strauss's critique of Collingwood, which actually was also quoted in, in Krakauer's book on, on history, Last Things Last. In that chapter on Croce, he actually goes back to Leo Strauss's critique of Collingwood. So the pursuit of historical truth once involved some profoundly ascetic techniques of the self. And we have seen that in spite of the decline of the Rankian methods of writing history, this idea persisted well into the 20th century. Truth is anti-presentism. Objectivity, on the other hand, has no necessary hostility to historical findings being anchored in the concerns of the present. If you absent this tension, actually, between the idea of truth, however minimally described and understood, as in the Alan McGill book, and objectivity, and the current interest about objectivity, if you absented that tension, then objectivity would give ground to partisanship in history, converting the subject into a game of a mere clash of perspectives. In other words, the, to the degree that the present understanding of objectivity carries within itself an encrypted and barely recognizable idea of historical truth, an older idea of historical truth, it also carries a nostalgia for some lost universal. For the ethical nature of historical truth, as we have seen, was tied to the historian's faith in some universal institution undergirding ideas about public good. I have used the case of Sajjadunath Sarkar to suggest that the ascetic ideal of historical truth was dependent on a political correlate, what might be called imperial liberalism, the assumption that British Empire embodied a universal political institution in the interest of all, a universal that made historical truth into a public good. Indian democracy is an interesting case where all nostalgia for historical truth, and in that sense, any nostalgia for a universal order that everybody would experience as freedom, which is basic to the question of sovereignty. How do we create an order that I experience not as domination but freedom? Indian democracy is an interesting case where any nostalgia for such an order has evaporated. A spirit of partisanship reigns deep and supreme in the world of Indian history. The blurring of the line between perspective and knowledge can be seen, for instance, even in the statements of some of the most respected Indian historians. Consider the case of Romila Thapar, who has been engaged in a series of worthy debates against Hindu views of the past. In a recent essay, Thapar put her argument about history and political partisanship in the following form, acknowledging that, I'm quoting her, there is a link between the social sciences and political ideologies, unquote. She cautioned against, quoting again, invoking history to support political agendas, as that distorted historical knowledge. And yet then immediately went on to claim that her own defense of history, and I'm quoting, as an exploration of knowledge, is also part of the defense of the idea of a democratic secular society, as if that was not invoking history to support a political agenda, creating a democratic uh, secular society. And for my argument, it does not matter that I actually support her agenda. So let me not appear to be picking on Thapar alone in Indian debates on history. We in subaltern studies espoused a Maoist view in propounding the thesis 
that the peasant rebellions invariably began with the act of inverting the codes of social honor, and that the best way to read the archives of the elite was by inverting their perspectives, the famous saying of Mao, when the landlord says, bandit, here rebel. It is not surprising that the current and serious and somewhat lethal Maoist violence in India is justified by a similar view. As Ganapati, the general secretary of the Communist Party Maoist, wrote in a well-known Indian publication, Indian and Political Week, Economic and Political Weekly, in January last year, he said, the truth of the oppressed is different from the truth of the oppressor. If Bhagat Singh, a nationalist revolutionary, was a hero for the Indian people, he was the greatest terrorist and villain for the British colonialists. Interesting point is that Indian history, even those written by Indians, did not always labor under such banners of partisanship. Things were different in the first decade after independence, when Nehru presided over the transition from the colonial to the post-colonial nationhood, and looked to build a liberal nation without the ballast of the idealized empire, where he thought the empire could simply take over from where the nation could take over from where the empire left off. And because after all, it was remarkable that when the time came from the government of India to sponsor an official history celebrating the centenary of the mutiny of 1857, the directive was clear from the education minister to the historian who wrote it, don't be partisan. Don't write a nationalist account of the event, which was a remarkable statement. The more the nation in India has moved away from the ideals of the empire, and I'm speaking of the ideals of the empire, not the fact that brutal suppression of many secessionist movements take place in India. In other words, the more India has moved away from that, the more distant we have become from Sarkar's ideals of historical truth, which only perhaps goes to show that Uday Singh Mehta was probably right to say that the liberal imagination of the world was underwritten by the fact of empire, which may be the reason why the nation could not carry on the task of the empire. We now write history in circumstances that can only be described as post-imperial and democratic. This is my last paragraph. But not necessarily liberal. Our, in other words, there's a separation between democracy and liberalism. Our historical narratives often affirm rights without any clear answer to the question of sovereignty. Can we create an order that we experience as freedom? If the craft of history today in India, but perhaps elsewhere as well, were to find an ethical dimension internal to its practice, Historians would have to work out in what sense and under what conditions history could still be seen as a public good over and above individual perspectives and experiences, or conflicting perspectives and experiences. But this would mean moving our democratic struggles beyond the politics of representation and towards new forms of sovereignty and correspondingly new forms of universals. This unfinished task is what marks our time. Recycling universals, however, that have already been discredited by the history of colonial and racial domination is no substitute for this struggle, which is why I think the likes of Neil Ferguson do not show us the way forward, because what they want is a recycling of the old empire. But without this struggle on the other hand, that is without a struggle for a new universal, historical knowledge runs the risk of falling prey to the game of perspectives. Thank you very much.